Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, Yanelli speaks with author, actor, podcast host, and storyteller. That's a lot, folks. Christopher Rivas, who you may know from his role as Oscar on the Fox sitcom, Call Me Cat. Christopher talks about what motivated him to write his new book, Brown Enough, why he wants more kids and teens to learn about money, and how his identity as a half Dominican and half Colombian kid from Queens has shaped his work and life. Enjoy. All right, so this is a very special speaker series. We have a speaker series, the very first one of the month, which is an author's corner, and we're celebrating Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month. So we have a, a triple special event tonight, and I'm so, so, so excited to welcome our speaker tonight because we have been having a conversation about this event for a long time, and so now it's finally here. Um, so we have the author of Brown Enough, Christopher Rivas. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to be here. I'm grateful to be here. I can't believe like everybody's from so many different places. <laughs> That's right. That's what one of the things I love about working with NGPF is the teachers. We have like over 70,000 teachers that have created an account with NGPF, which means that in some way, shape or fashion, they're going to be using the curriculum to teach their students about money. Now, as you can see from our live event tonight in the chat box, we have teachers that teach economics, personal finance, we have um, alternative education classes, math classes, business, like there's just so many ways that you can apply money to the way that students are learning within a traditional public school and even, even alternative schools. So I just love to see that people not only are teaching all these different disciplines, but that they're coming from literally all across the country, all the different states, all these different cities, rural areas as well. And it's just amazing to all come together. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And yeah, we have to teach. Yes, we'll get into it. But yes, we got to teach, teach the finance. <laughs> absolutely do. Okay, so we are here to talk about all of the work that you do. We're not just here to talk about the book, but your book is coming out in just a few days from this, the recording of this. And so we right obviously want to get, we definitely want to get to that. Um, however, I want you to kind of set the stage a little bit for your work. I know you as an author. I know you as a storyteller, a podcast host, and now an author as well. Um, you know, on top of being an actor and a podcast host and all these things. <laughs> For those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with your story and your work, tell us a little bit more of a deeper intro to who is Chris? Who is Christopher Rivas? Hey, y'all. Uh, I'm a Dominican-Colombian kid from Queens, New York, a Dominican father, Colombian mother. Uh, as mentioned, I'm an actor. Uh, I'm on a television show. Call me Cat. Uh, I'm Fox. I am also an author. I've made, I make a lot of art. I write a lot. I basically write everything down. Uh, I've been a lot of newspapers. All my work is about disrupting uh, traditionally binary spaces. That's the essence of my work is what does it look like to live in that middle space to sort of crack open this world we live in, which needs a little bit of disruption because it's not perfect, as I think we all can agree. Uh who knows if we'll ever get to perfect. And then ideally I make it entertaining by adding a little bit of sugar, you know, sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> yes. And honestly, I love the way you do that because it's, it's something that is scientific. It's beyond us, right? The fact that stories are 
something that humans are wired for. We are wired for storytelling. And so I just love that in all the work that you do, you really do bring in this in the importance of storytelling, whether that's in your podcast, whether that's in your book, um, which I'm halfway through. And I literally, I'm just like loving it so far as a fellow New Yorker. I, I grew up in Brooklyn and I just feel like there's so many stories of things that you're talking about from your experience as a kid that I, it resonated with me so much. Um, but tell us a little bit about your decision to write Brown Enough, because it is definitely a compilation of so many different themes. Um, you're talking about a lot, right? You're talking about your experience as an actor. You're talking about your experiences growing up as a son of immigrants in New York City. You're growing, you're talking about um, moving beyond your family and going off to college. And you're talking about the student loan debt burden that you personally have taken on as a result of that. Um, and a lot of discrimination that you have faced trying to break into Hollywood. Um, but you've been, you've, you know, you're very successful. You're an actor on television. You're also very well known for your podcast. So I think being, being to the point that you've decided to put a lot of this out there into this book through stories was, I'm sure, a very vulnerable decision that you made because you put out very specific, you know, you tell us about how much student <laughs> loan debt you have. You put out, you put out a lot. So what made you feel compelled to make the decision to put this book out there? I... In terms of sort of like the the intimacy of the book, which I get a lot of people are like, yeah, you put everything. It's um, I don't know why it has always been in my nature and easier just to just to be honest. You know, mm -hmm. I believe I believe in radical honesty and I believe in what that can do for me as a person. Right. Like we I love. Yeah, that's beautiful. Disruption is essential to learning and change. And, and one of the ways we can disrupt even ourselves, because not only systems need disrupting, so do we, right? We need to challenge some of our own thinking and some of the stuff braided into us. And one of the ways I do that is, is by just being honest, <laughs> like radically honest, taking radical responsibility uh, for what I've done in my life or not have not or haven't done. I, so that's one. What made me write the book? I don't know how many of you know the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's outstanding, really brilliant man. Some have called him our modern day James Baldwin. And I went to see him speak at an event and he was speaking about sort of race in America, black and white, which he often does. And I raised my hand and I said, as a Dominican Colombian kid, as a brown person from Queens, where does that leave me in the conversation? Mm. And he said, not in it. And he didn't say it in an aggressive way. He didn't say it in a... I think he said it, I look at with tremendous gratitude in an honest way. In this world of black and white, which is how we have broken down this world for hundreds of years, there was no space for the middle. Mm. We don't talk about the middle. We don't look at the middle. And, and I went home sort of shattered. Where am I? What does it mean to take up space to be in it, to like, not be in it? Where's my father? Where's my mother? <laughs> Where's my father? Where's my mother? Where's the people I love? Where's my community? Whereas most of Queens, one of the most, you know, diverse places in the world. And so I wrote this book, like it really, it really made me blow up and challenge my life. What have I been doing under the gaze of whiteness that didn't allow me to take up my own space? And then I just wrote everything down and kind of blew up my life. And, and now you get this book and uh, <laughs> exciting news. We're on our second printing and it hasn't even come out yet. So, you know, now is the time to get it and pre-order it. I'll say this now, and I, and I might hear me say it again, but since 1950, only 5% of books published have been by non-white authors. 5% since 1950. 
you can look it up in the New York Times. You can look it up anywhere. It's out there <laughs> like uh, 5%. And wow. so the only way we support if we say we really want change is to pre-order and support books by non-white authors. Uh, so I'm grateful to be here sharing this art with y'all. That's right. And to really double down on supporting you and your book, not just through bringing you on here and having you share your story with, um, you know, teachers in the NGPR community, and hopefully so that they can, you know, this has a ripple effect, so they can then take this to their students, right? Um, but beyond that, and I wrote it for, I wrote it. I mean, I want high schoolers to read this thing. You know, like mm. I want young. The dedication in the book is. This book is dedicated to all the little brown kids who need to see themselves grander and more vibrant, but don't. I see you. I hear you. We hear, you know, mm. like we have an incredible study guide that comes with it. So you're all educators. You reach out to us. We'll get you this insane, insanely beautiful discussion and study guide we made. Uh, yeah. You know, I do think that there's this um, obsession right now with entertainment and succeeding in either acting or social media personality or or being an athlete or being a, a rapper, you know, and I don't know that that's ever not been the case. Like even when I was growing up, like everybody wanted to be a rapper or a baller, right? And so it's really cool to have you as an actor who has succeeded in Hollywood and, and you know, is working with so many amazing people on really cool projects to also you know, really be proud in your identity as somebody who is intellectual as well. The entertainment and actors and actresses and singers and dancers and rappers, they don't often stand in pride in being curious and intellectual and being, you know, like more than just that job, more than an actor, more than a dancer, more than a rapper, but really caring and having a lot of curiosity about the world and the issues that matter to all of us. Um, and, and so I just love that you're doing that. And I know one of the big ones right now that kind of are going to come up, especially as we're in Hispanic Heritage Month, is identity and the language around identity. So I want to start with that. Right now, there's so many debates about what do we call ourselves? Are we Latinos and Latinas, Latinx, Latine? Are we Hispanic? Are we, you know, and so in your book, the title is brown enough. So I imagine you like and identify with that term brown as well, which I, I hear a lot. Um, you know, there's so many terms and the language keeps shifting and changing. And there's so many people that like certain terms and not others. Where's your take on that? What terms you identify with or don't and why? Yeah, so y'all are uh, educators, and it's it's a fun fact that forty nine percent of millennials identify as multicultural. Fifty one percent of Gen Z identify as multicultural. There is a cultural fluidity taking place in this world. There's a fluidity in general, right? Uh, look at gender and they. This idea that we can be more than one thing. I think that's something I'm really fascinated with my work. That's what that's what brown means to me, right? Because there will never be, as far as, you know, Latino or Latinidad or X, E, like there will never be a box that can contain 24 different countries, hips, food, colors. Like it's just impossible. But yeah. they try and put everything in a box and they yeah. do this for everything. We break up the world into this or this, you know, pass, fail, yes, no, this, that, right, wrong. And what about that space in the middle? where everything really exists and always has been. And there's more brownness in this world than anything else. And everything is always fluid. So identity to me is like, how can I embrace a more fluid space? Like you can't contain me in a box. 
I can be more things. I can be more than one thing at once. And Brown was the way I broke out of that binary, you know, was a way I've set myself free and began to take back my voice and, you know, spoke to what you said, like, oh, I can be intellectual and silly. Yeah. You know, I can be on a sitcom and write a book <laughs> like uh, I can be honest and intimate. All of these things all at once. Uh, yeah. I love that. And I think it kind of speak is clear in the language that you choose in your book. One of the things I noticed in the book, you use the term uh, global majority a lot. And, mm -hmm. I, and I like that because I've been seeing a shift away from the term minority. And I never really, you know, like myself never had, you know, a, a, anybody unpack the language around like, well, you know, I'm a minority, right? And what does that mean? And why do we use that language? But when you put that up against global majority, it's almost like, why, why do we keep using the word minority? You know, so it, at least that's how it, it rung for me. Uh, was that a purposeful choice that you made in using global minority instead of, you know, the, the, the others, other kind of choices around words that you can or terms that you can use to apply to um, non-white folks or to the, an opposition to the term minority? Yeah, so global majority was a really chosen point for me. When I heard that, I fell in love. And I don't know how many of y'all know Bad Bunny, but uh, Bad Bunny is on tour and everywhere he goes, he sells out 40,000 people every night. It's yeah. the most successful tour of all time. Of all time. Right. All time. And that to me says, how are we not global majority? We're here. This is not a thing we're fighting for. It's not a yesterday thing. We are we are here. Like, and so we are we are this majority. And part of it is I don't actually think we know how powerful we are. I don't think we know how much space we take up, how much influence we can have. And you know, part of that is media. It doesn't show us a lot of us. Uh it it doesn't the numbers don't back up the talk about DEI right now, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, your students love Bad Bunny, of course, like everyone does, you know, <laughs> right. and, and also it's everyone, right? It's not just, it's not just, you know, bodies of culture. It's like everybody. It's, it is, it is this part of this cultural fluidity that's taking place. And, and so that's why I chose global majority because I needed to, I needed to use a term that would empower us to say, we're already here. This isn't a thing I'm fighting for. It's already happening. Right. I actually just saw a tweet, or well, I think it was a, a picture of a tweet that I saw on Instagram, um, which was the October 1st, FAFSA applications opened. And somebody posted, I'm going to tell FAFSA that you were in the floor seats to Bad Bunny concert. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of young people are out here buying tickets to Bad Bunny, but, you know, we don't got it. We, we find mm. the money that we don't have to support, you know, so... I think that that's just one, like it was a funny thing to read, but then it kind of brought to mind, like that's so true. We often are making decisions financially that maybe we're not in a position to make, but because we have these passions and we're not learning about money to, to really have that kind of real truth conversation about the financial aspect of the choice, right? So we usually use our emotions to make the choices that we're most passionate about and not always make it a, you know, T-chart with like the financial pros and cons on each side. So tell us a little bit about your experience doing that, making decisions in life. Did you have the ability to lean on like a strong financial education? Did you get money lessons growing up, whether that's in school, in a class or at home? 
conversations about money um, and, and what do, maybe those, what are some of those memories around choices that you had to make informed or not informed by a financial education or lack thereof? You know, I did not receive a financial education like at all. And I wish I did from so many sources. I wish I did, but I think part of it is, you know, I have parents whose parents didn't have the tools to give those education. So they're figuring it out in the moment, right? Like they're doing their best. We're all doing our best. And then we get invested in this American dream which sells us a story, you know, but I like to call it the American dream. Like yeah. it, 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 it sells us this idea of upward mobility in this, but, you know, especially for bodies of culture, like when you, I, can I just maybe read something from the book, from the student? That would be chapter? amazing. I was just about to say, I didn't want to cut right. you off, but I was just about to say, that's one of the chapters, right? The American yeah. dream. I want to type it out so people can visually see how you put that into the book, but yes, please. An excerpt from the author. Hello. Amazing. We stand, we're here for it. Yeah, I'll type it. I'll type it here. Although you did type it. You beat me to it. Yeah. Uh, so the quote at the top of it says, I don't read magazines, Virginia. I go to work exhausted and come home exhausted. That is how most of the people in this country function, at least people who have jobs. Sarah Rule. I have $244,000 in student loan debt, and I went to acting school. Yes, acting school. I have a BFA in theater. I'm actually quite successful on paper. I have my own Wikipedia page. I'm a series regular on TV. I wrote a book. You're listening to it. But I studied theater for four years, not brain surgery or law, and I'm drowning in debt. And no one knows this until the moment this book comes out, then everyone knows it. Not even my parents know how bad it's become, and they're co-signers on these loans. I guess they too now know. It's not 244 in principle. This is what has happened with compounded interest. I owe three times as much as my original loans, just in interest. I signed these papers. My parents and I signed them together. My uncle came on as a co-signer, something I know he now regrets. I get it. He hates the calls, the letters, the barrage of area codes asking him for money, the fear he lives with, that if I fuck up, what little he has will all be taken away from him. It keeps him up at night. It keeps me up at night, too. Even an ex of mine signed on as a co-signer. I actually paid this one off. Why didn't you do a scholarship or financial aid? Because... Most middle-class families in America are not wealthy enough to afford college, but also not broke enough to be able to qualify for financial aid or scholarships. Also, I did get some scholarships. I wrote every essay you can imagine. Did it cover my whole tuition? No. Well, didn't you read the loan agreement? Yeah. Of course, I read the 60-page loan agreement with my parents sitting by my side. We all read it together. We read about FAFSAs, master promissory notes, Pell Grants, private subsidized, unsubsidized. We read through the general lack of clarity on how repayment works, and still we signed the dotted line. Why then? The answer is simple. We believed in the American dream. Well, you know the story. Be the first in your family to go to college. Life will be better. Be a trailblazer. Life will be better. I believed in this story. I believed in better, and I went in search of it. I'd read somewhere that Steve Jobs used to operate under the idea that once you make people believe that you have something they need, you can make them believe anything. Why else would anyone who wasn't born into serious wealth or who received a full scholarship attend a private institution of any kind? Because in some way we have been conned into believing the dream, conned into thinking the more elite and expensive the college, the better the chance at succeeding. A con that is so deeply implanted into our psyche that excessively wealthy, mainly white parents will commit outright fraud in order to win an already shitty rigged and skewed admission system. 
to give their children an education that they, of all people, do not actually need. The Khan takes us all. Lori Laughlin was just sentenced to two months in prison for paying, for paying bribes of $550,000 to get her daughters into USC. Just to get them enrolled, they would still be paying a tuition on top of that. Two months in prison. Crystal Mason, a black mother of three children, was sentenced to five years in prison for voting when she didn't realize a past felony conviction made her ineligible. Then there's Kelly Williams Bolar, a black woman who was sentenced to five years imprisonment for registering her child in her father's school district. While her sentence was eventually reduced, she was left unable to complete her teaching certification. Do you know that episode of Seinfeld where George tells his recently deceased wife's family that he has a house in the Hamptons when he really doesn't? He insists on taking them there, even though he knows there is no house to take them to. And the family decides to go along for this ride to this imaginary Hamptons house, even though they're fully aware that George does not have a house in the Hamptons. But they want to see how far this game will play out. Who's going to break first? So they all hop in the car and insist on going on this drive to a house everyone knows doesn't exist. Everyone knows the house is a lie, but they all take the drive to nowhere anyway. They all go along with the lie and see it till its end. And that is the American dream. We get in a car to head towards our house in the Hamptons that doesn't actually exist, but we take the drive anyway. We take it because we believe in miracles. Maybe we believe a house will just appear out of thin air. Maybe we believe in the drive itself. Maybe the lie has gone so far that we can't turn back because we'll look like a fool. And nobody wants to look like a fool. My drive consisted of me believing in myself enough to audition for the top theater conservatories in the world and getting into most of them then crying in the living room when I opened the acceptance letters, crying because I knew I had the talent to pursue my dreams, that art wasn't just a selfish act or a bid for attention, but a calling. I cried because I knew my family could not afford to help me go to college. They were drowning in credit card debt and it was multi and, and drowning in mortgage and multiple home equity loans against their house. They busted their ass just to be middle-class, just for their own slice of the American dream. And yet there was no way they could pay for my college education. This meant that I would have to take out multiple $37,000, 30-year private Stafford loans for which I now have ended up paying more than $50,000 in interest on each loan. Yes, I will end up paying more interest than the actual loan themselves. And there's more. Wow. There is an audio book. It's on Audible. Yes. And also, yes. And also the issue that you mentioned in that chapter, which you know, you brought it up and, and covered and mentioned it a couple of times was um, the Operation Varsity Blues. If y'all haven't seen that documentary about the, the scandal with parents paying to bribe colleges to accept their students. And we're talking about uber wealthy folks doing this. Highly recommend watching that documentary. You really like you really took issue with with the student loan debt crisis and the American dream and what it what you define that as. But I want to be clear as somebody who read the most of the book already um, that you made it clear at the end of that chapter that you are not anti education. And I think Correct. this is very important. This is very important because right now when you critique the education system or the higher education system, people misinterpret what you're saying and say, oh, so you're, you're not in support of education. So you, and that's not what you're saying. You are not anti-education. I think you, your quote was that you are against the cost of education, which has been inflating hundreds and hundreds of percent from you know, just the past two to three decades, which is insane. So yeah, right I'm, now we're-, we're I, I wanna emphasize ahead. that, yes. I. 
I am not anti-education. Education changed my life. Right? Mm. Like I had, I had an unbelievable time. Uh, I mean, look, I'm still going after my, you know, PhD, like <laughs> in expressive arts for global health and peace building. Like education is a beautiful thing. It is the cost of education and it is the lack of information. Like you tell me to get the best education, but then you make me feel like I made a dumb choice for pursuing the thing you told me to get. And that is criminal and heartbreaking and sad. And so many, so many, so many millions of students who just wanted to, you know, like we're living that story of learn, grow, right? Be in community are now, are now suffering for making the choice you told them to make. And so I'm anti the cost of education and I'm, and I'm anti the information we have about different types of education, different forms of schooling, different places, different way we can receive information. We don't have to spend so much learning about loans. We should learn that in high school. You should learn that information in high school. Uh, and you do not. Uh, and so, yes, I'm not anti-education. I'm anti the lack of education around <laughs> education. Yes. And financing education, which I think so your point in the book is that is that you don't prepare people to make these decisions and then you point at them and say it's your fault when the decision was made without access to the knowledge and the resources and the tools to make it the most financially savvy decision possible. Um, so I love that that you mentioned that you really put in stats. I mean, you're not just sitting here complaining. You're really talking about the total value of the student loan debt outstanding being over $1.5 trillion and being set to double expected by the date 2025. Um, you put in a lot of statistics. And one of the ones that you didn't mention, but that I always like to add to this conversation is that right now, we're experiencing like really high inflation, like a 9% inflation. People are freaking out about that. Like, yo, 9% inflation, that's insanely high, right? Historic record highs. Now imagine if inflation every year for 30 years straight or every year for 20 years straight was 9%. That's what happens to college tuition in America. Every single year for 20 years straight, it inflated at an average of 9%. So if we, so if we can't handle 9% inflation as an economy, why should young people be able to handle 9% inflation every year for two decades straight and be expected to figure it out, just figure it out without any critique of the system or of you know, the lack of education or of policies or really of anything. So I just love that with a platform that you have, with your book, but as an actor, as a podcast host, as a speaker, as a storyteller, that you chose to take a strong position and tell your story, first of all, and to really take a stance um, and, and express your feelings about this and really back it up with a lot of facts, figures, and why. So people can't sit here and say, you're just bitter, you're just mad, you're anti-education. Absolutely not. That's not what this is about. So I really think that that's why that chapter in particular had a lot of value. Um, and maybe talk to us a little bit about developing that chapter and deciding to put in student loan debt as a, a, a whole chapter in your book. I mean, it's not just, it's not like a story that you tell at the beginning, like it has its own dedicated chapter um, that you call the American dream. You're listening to a podcast from NextGen Personal Finance. Does your local school district meet the gold standard? A standalone personal finance course for every student before high school graduation? Find out using our nationwide map under the advocacy tab at www.ngpf.org.
Yeah. So before I do that, I think it, I, I want to just to speak to this inflation. I think it's incredible that when my parents were in college, they could have a summer job and afford school. <laughs> like yeah. it's unbelievable. And now we're here. And I have friends who need three to four jobs. You know, the reason it's so important to me is because I can't believe I got so lucky. Mm. There's a level of luck. It needed its own chapter because I, I quote this tweet. My favorite tweet says, you know, go fund me 2011 when it starts. It's like, cool idea, support my project. Go fund me 2020, the backbone of the American health care system. Mm. Like, what we are asking of people, and there's no education on that either. Like, what we're asking of people doesn't uh doesn't match what we're giving you know and and so i needed to give this a chapter because i feel lucky to be able to be an artist especially with student loans knowing for how many people it has it has burdened them from from being an artist from being what they wanted to be because they just had to go get a job and then get another job and get another job and and time and space is such an important value in this life the space to think, the space to imagine. And so I'm just extremely grateful. And I feel sad for, for, for the state of, of, of the student loan crisis. Okay. And so I needed to give it that space. And it was probably, it's my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, and it was probably like one of the hardest ones to write. Uh, but it's definitely my, my, my favorite chapter. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about um, how it has impacted those who have loans right now, right? And that your heart goes out to them. But let, you know, we have a, a whole cohort of, of teachers who are in front every single day. They stand in front of the next generation, which potentially could be the next generation of borrowers. Many of them, I'm sure, will go on to borrow. Um, and so let's talk about being somebody that has gone through this, graduating with six years of student loan debt and having the story that you have and the knowledge that you have. How would you, if you were in their shoes as a teacher right now, in front of Gen Z, right? The next generation of students. How would you position this in the classroom, in the curriculum to make sure that when they leave your classroom, they have what you, the best that you could provide them in terms of an understanding and a foundation for making the best decision for them. So whether that means going to college and figuring out how to finance that, or maybe that's an alternative to college pathway. Maybe it's not college uh, and for whatever reason, but a lot of students are really stressed out right now with that decision. Do I go to college? If so, how do I pay for it? Or do I not go to college? And if I don't, what else do I do? How can I make this choice? Especially right now when social media is just sounding off every second of every minute of every day, telling them that they can be entrepreneurs, they can be YouTube TikTokers, they can make a million dollars overnight, you know, and, and, and that's also, you know, in their ear and in front of their eyes as they're scrolling. So it, it, it's only making the decision a little bit more difficult with all that noise. Um, if you were in these teachers' shoes, what would you do in the classroom with your students? Yeah, you know, as educators, I would say we have to start earlier than later like way before junior year, really earlier than later, we, we, we need to arrive at a point where we allow young adults to understand the pressure of any kind of loan, really, 
you know, the weight of, 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 of debt. And personally, I'm against the pressure we put on kids to borrow astronomical amounts of money at such a young age. Right. And so that's one thing I would do. And then exactly what you said, I would, I would talk about trade schools. I would say, you know what? Community college is okay. <laughs> like, I would really, you have to give this information early on. You have to really provide options. There are so many universities and places that you can study. Uh, and this needs to be spoken about early, early on. I think that's my thing. Like early, early on, we need to have financial conversations about loan, about debt, uh, about credit even, like all of this, right? We need to have these conversations early on. But yes, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. Like, is, is the best college in the world the, the best idea for everyone? It might not be. You know, when there are trade schools, when there's community college, when there's state, right? What's the difference between state and this and out of state? What's the difference between a private loan and a public loan? You know, uh, what's the difference between government funding? And the, like, uh, so all of that, I think it's just what I would ask for is, is that education and that openness and that openness, like, like a, a real honesty about finances and the state of education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, shameless plug here because I, I'm part of the team here at NGPF. <laughs> at NGPF, we have middle school curriculum resources as well as high school. And we have both paying for college with lessons, activities, games, assignments, and a whole other unit called alternatives to four-year college. Because it is, it's not fair to focus on one or the other alone. It's, it, we really need to make sure that every student everywhere understands the whole palette, right, of, of what is available to them um, in this world, not only in our country, but in this world, to really help them to become a global citizen. What can you do at the age of 18? It's not only get a job or go to college or join the military and that's it, right? We really want our, our, our next generation to have of a clear and full understanding of all the options that are available to them. Uh, so as you mentioned, community college, trade school, there, there's so many routes that oftentimes people find out through the school of hard knocks instead of finding out in school, in actual real school. So it's very important. Um, we're, we, we're so happy that we have this community of teachers, all of them fighting literally day in and day out to promote more access to financial education by either teaching an elective class or teaching a full um, semester requirement course of personal finance or financial literacy. And that's part of this movement to make sure the next generation doesn't have that same um, feeling of like, never getting the access to the knowledge and the resource and the need to make the best decisions for themselves. So, you know, this is definitely, and it's not something that's gonna, we're gonna solve overnight by way beyond having people like you, having figures that they can look to and so snap on TV. Chris has a podcast, Chris is a speaker, Chris is doing all these events all across the country and Chris is speaking about this. That says a lot, you know, that really moves mountains for a young, for another kid, another brown kid from Queens to see that. Um, so using your platform to tell your story is amazing. And I wonder. I also think finances is so, uh, sorry, finances no, is so, uh, it's so secret, right? You know, there's a podcast, uh, Sex, Death and Money. Yes. Like the, you know, um, 
these these three things that are always here they ain't going away yep. and and we don't talk about talk any about of them, them. <laughs> you know yeah. and so i think it, it it can provide some courage and some armor to, to be open about yeah. to be open about finances in general yep. top to bottom that's right okay so now as a teacher the challenge is this you have the five minutes before the bell rings you have only for that time and you have them only for a certain number of weeks until the semester is up and then they're off to the right their next credit that they need graduation so you mentioned it being a huge thing that you are an advocate for teaching them about pay and interest rates early only had to choose three topics that you really had me so much time to eat credit one but also others that you think like now back upon your life you know would have been fundamental in your you know progression towards uh being a successful adult credit is up there uh yeah i mean i think i think the, i think it's that i think it's credit debt and 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 what a loan is which is tied into both you need credit you know like you need credit to have debt <laughs> like yeah. the irony um so i i think it's the, those three right it's like credit debt loan yeah one of the things that um a lot of teachers will advocate for is teaching students budgeting obviously teaching students investing i think is so key it's hard with a limited time right with the students to choose just a few topics so oh compound I, interest yeah barbara good call yes. for, for real wow that yes. is that is unbelievable it is so insane yes right. that <laughs> almost, and and that one is powerful because i think it plays both sides it can work against you if you owe and in compound interest but it can also work for you you're investing your money and and the return you're making is compounding over time make grow wealth if you, if you can understand, you can apply it, you know, you can understand that it can be bad for you or it can help, it can help you to grow well. So I think that's a really good one. You mentioned it in right about the, the way compound interest completely changed your debt situation from the principal yeah. that you had, that you borrowed to what you ended up owing um, and how it's just ballooned. Um, one of the, the things in your book that I also recognize that you talk a lot about is the family dynamics. Um, especially households. One of the stories that hit me, I was almost a little shocked because you went home as your freshman from college and told your parents like just how thankful you were, how grateful you wrote them a letter and you were crying to tell them just how glad you were that everything that you were doing, you were doing it for them. Tell us about the way your dad responded to that and how that impacted you as you moved on and, and decided on, you know, pursuing the career that you chose. Yeah. So I, I, uh, you know, I had no money. And so I wrote a letter for, for the holidays <laughs> as a gift. And, uh, the, the letter was received. I said, everything I do, I do for you. And he said, excuse my French, but he said, for me, get the fuck out of here. Don't do anything for me. We didn't do anything we did for you. We did it for us because it's, it's what we wanted to do. You know, we, we wanted to work this hard to give our children what we never had. And this was a really sort of shocking moment for me uh, to, to think about what it means to, to, to be generous, but from a place of like, no, this is for, this is actually for me. This isn't generous for you. This is for me. Like there's a win here. And so I, it was that moment that I said, like, 
I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep doing the things I love, knowing that they will serve others. You know, they will be this gift I can give that I don't have to do it for them. They get to also have it, but I get to do the things I love, you know, and all the more reason this this whole student loan thing needed a chapter because I'm able to do the things I love, which is such a a blessing. I, I do know that. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much. Wait, this, this question. I, I, I know. There's I'm a, sorry. Final we gotta, question. I, I see, it, I see it. And I'm like, I'm like, well, we can't end without doing that question for sure. Damn, but I can't, I also can't epic. end without thanking you. So of course I want to thank you and give you the chance to end with that last question. Go for it. Um, thank you. Thank each and every one of you. This question is, wow, in Iowa, we have a House File 802, which prevents us from speaking about injustice and suggesting that there are marginalized groups and that discrimination has occurred. Wow. Just wow. Let's take let's take a moment for that. Let's hold space for that. That is still the world we live in. So it's just nice to hold space for that. What would be the best way for teachers to support Hispanic and Latino students and help them see themselves in your content? I think it's just to show them the content. If you're not suggesting it or teaching it, but you're showing, you're showing content, you're showing them, look, there are people like you, you know, telling, telling their story or they're on TV or look, they made this podcast. You're not doing any of this suggesting you're just sharing, like just share, share it, share it with, with those students, right? You don't have to, you don't have to tell them, you don't have to, you don't have to put anything on them. Uh, it's just sharing uh, what is there. And that's part of it is like, it's hard to find content, you know, that is our story, you know? Yeah, sharing is caring. Uh, and so find that, find that content that is our story. Uh, and it's there. They can listen to the Ruby Rosa podcast. They also turn the book into a podcast. It's called Brown Enough. We have some incredible interviews uh, is the name of the podcast as well. And then please uh, order the book. Uh, and I really, really appreciate you. Look, here's the thing. I hope you win a book, but I also hope you order one and you order one for someone in your life who needs this. And it could be a, a brown person in your life. It can be a white person in your life. It could be a black person in your life. It could be anybody in your life. Give this as a gift. I'm very grateful for you. And thank you for your time few final housekeeping items before we go. We'll put links to several of the resources that Christopher mentioned, including his book. We'll put that in our show notes, which you can access at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcast. Better yet, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I want to thank Ren McKino for producing our podcast every week, as well as the show notes. Thank you, Ren. So on behalf of Yanelli, Christopher, and myself, I want to thank you again for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.